0: couple in their 60s um explained to me that they had recently become grandparents. Um, their daughter lived in Florida, um, but the baby died on um, the second day of life. And it was a just a tragic story um, of a newborn that had a you know totally unremarkable pregnancy and delivery and um just uh, on the second day of life just died and um I, you know I, I was horrified by this story and the, you know this poor uh these poor grandparents and and then they told me and or um that that happened um actually you know earlier in the year and she's pregnant again and i i asked you know, what had been done to try to, you know, why did the baby die? What, what, what happened? Um, did they do a newborn screening test?
1: <laughs> You're listening to The Voice of Dr. Richard Perraud, who's the director of the Newborn Genomic Program in the Department of Pediatric Newborn Medicine at Brigham's and Women's Hospital in Boston, Massachusetts. He is also the associate professor of pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. He's a neonatologist and a pediatric pulmonologist by clinical training. He has been an investigator in multiple clinical trials targeting the treatment of newborn lung diseases and has authored a number of epidemiological studies of bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Through his initial work in newborn screening dating back to the late 1990s with a focus on cystic fibrosis, fondly known as 65 Roses, a phrase coined in 1965 when a small boy after hearing his mother make phone calls to fundraise for cystic fibrosis research, told him she was working for 65 Roses. Helps advance the mission of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network to expand newborn screening. Dr. Perron's effort enabled Massachusetts to become one of the first states to offer cystic fibrosis known as CF screening. He was a principal investigator in the BabySeq project that studied genomic sequencing in newborns that you can learn more about by visiting the website mbstrn.org. Dr. Parade is continuing to advance newborn screening research by conceiving of and implementing a hospital-based supplemental Duchenne muscular dystrophy newborn screening program. His interest in integrating genomic sequencing platforms into newborn screening has led to developing pilot programs for newborn genomic sequencing of cancer predisposition syndromes, such as retinoplastoma and Mankey's disease. MBA Student is excited to share Dr. Sparad's passion with our communities of listeners. Hello, this is the Newborn Screening Spotlight. This podcast is about the advancement of rare disease research, told by health professionals, researchers, parents, and advocates. This podcast is for you to learn how newborn screening research saves the lives of babies every day through the discovery of new technology and treatment. You will hear stories from experts who treat babies, the families who care for them, and the researchers who make it all happen. We are your co-hosts. I am Dr. Ki-Chan.
2: And I'm Dr. Amy Brower. We're from the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, also known as the MBS trn Our work is supported by one of the institutes at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, called the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development, also known as NICHD. Dr. Chan and I are from the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics, also known as ACMG, and ACMG leads the MBSTRN. Screening babies saves lives every day and research advances newborn screening by developing new technologies to screen, diagnose, and treat. MBSTRN helps accelerate research by creating tools, resources, and expertise for researchers, doctors, families, patients, and advocates.
1: To learn how you can help advance newborn screening research, advocate for rare disease screening and treatment, Learn about important discovery, become a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network by visiting our website at www.mbstrn.org. Hello, Dr. Parad. Thank you so much for joining us today for our podcast interview. We're so delighted to have you join us. Based on your background, you've been in many different shoes. You are a neonatologist. How did you get involved with newborn screening research?
0: T, thank you for for inviting me. Um, I actually am both a neonatologist and a pediatric uh, pulmonologist. And uh, the way I got into newborn screening research was via cystic fibrosis. Uh, as a as a pediatric pulmonary fellow, um, I was doing some research, and my uh, research mentor advised me to to advise uh, to, uh, apply for one of these NIH um, training grants, a K08 grant. And it was just around the time that the gene for cystic fibrosis had been uh, discovered. And uh, he convinced me this was the way to go to submit a grant on looking at uh, associations of uh, mutations in the, in the CF gene with different uh, clinical presentations. And I submitted the grant. I was funded. And as part of a KOA grant, you have to go uh, to school and take some courses and learn new stuff, which I uh, did. I, I uh, went to public health school to learn about population genetics and uh, biostatistics and epidemiology. And actually, only had funding to take one or two courses. But it was so interesting that I said, well, I'm, I'm going to take maybe I'll take a couple more. And um, I ended up getting my MPH uh, over three years from taking courses um, here and there. But as one of the last courses I took um, for that degree, I had to take a course on screening. And just, you know, screening in general, not just newborn screening and principles of screening. And to complete the course, we had to do a project. And the project uh, that I chose was just around the time that Colorado had started publishing a couple of papers on uh, on their IRT, uh, IRT newborn screening program in the New England Journal of Medicine. I had seen that. And I, so for my project, I designed uh, a state newborn screening program for cystic fibrosis that would include DNA um, as, a, as part of the algorithm. So this was a theoretical thing in, in 1990, maybe six or something like that and so i presented the project i passed the course i um and i kept looking at the project and thinking you know this isn't such a bad idea so i brought it to um the newborn screening program the massachusetts newborn screening program or the new england newborn screening program where uh one of my uh, clinical mentors uh, a, a metabolics person did did um worked part of the time and he introduced me and I presented this to them. And I said, no, I don't think so. And then uh, I didn't give up. I came back uh, a year later and I presented them some more data. Wisconsin started publishing some information. um, I presented it a second time. And I think after the second time, I got a call back saying, you know what, we're kind of interested in this. And um, ultimately uh, I was hired by the newborn screening program as a consultant to um, present this idea to the commissioner of public health, who was the person who made decisions about whether new disorders were going to be added. So that was quite an experience. And um, and then we started our program in 1999, which was at that time, the first state-based newborn screening program that included uh, sort of a second tier DNA uh, component to it, and the New England Newborn Screening Program, I think, has been known for for its dedication to to research. It's been very thoughtful about uh, what what it, it's it's added and and how it's developed algorithms. So I was just brought up in this environment of asking questions and doing things carefully, and I think that sort of research side of newborn screening was their influence on 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 me so um it was not at all a planned or expected route at all and it and it ended up ended up being i think pretty successful because um within 10 years every state in the united states was doing cf newborn screening and and now they are all doing irt dna screening which was not not the case um at the beginning um and i think improvements have been made to, to screening but um I was very fortunate to to, to get that start in, in newborn screening.
1: That's such a fascinating story, Dr. Pratt. You have published on groundbreaking efforts in diverse diseases from cystic fibrosis to congenital heart disease. Were there experiences during your care of babies in the NICU that led you to lead a pilot of newborn screening for Duchenne muscular dystrophy?
0: Well, I mean, for CF... It actually, I was always very influenced from my clinical exposure as a as a medical student resident to CF patients. I did, um, you know, have a special place in my heart for for children with CF, and I hadn't taken care of that many um, DMD patients. So it wasn't actually a patient that inspired my involvement in that project. It was actually another researcher. So uh, over the past ten years, I've, I've written a few papers with, um, a, uh, a, a molecular uh, geneticist named Andy Battachargi who's, who's sort of a lab person who's been very dedicated towards advancing, um, the sort of techniques involved in, in genomics screening that could apply to newborns. And, um, he was the one who, um, sort of picked DMD as a, as a low hanging fruit, um, as as a next area for newborn screening to get into that he was going to um, work on at a company named babies in North Carolina that, that works on newborn screening products. And he was, I believe, working with them to try to develop um, a marketable uh, DMD newborn screening product. And that didn't end up being too, too um, successful. He ultimately left that, Company, but we kept talking about this idea of a two-tier um, DMD screen, and that had had been sort of tried in in some places. And there's there actually a long literature of DMD screening with just looking at CK levels for about maybe 40 or 50 years. People have been looking at that, but Andy really was interested in in trying to fine tune the the, uh, the second tier, the DNA. Part of it and because of my experience with CF that had a, a two-tier um, assay with a, an analyte and then DNA um, we started talking about how we could um, develop an assay for DMD that was like that that could all be done on one dried blood spot um, so so there are a few states in the United States that collect two um, but the vast majority collect only one dried blood spot and I, I can tell you now after having run this program for six months that it's really hard to get families back in to do that second dried blood spot. So, you know, if you if you have a cutoff on the first test you're doing that's means you have to bring a lot of people back, it's a lot of it's a lot of work and it's a lot of anxiety for the parents and it's a lot of people you can't reach, um, and pediatricians you can't reach. And um I really like the 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 beauty and efficiency of doing everything on one dried blood spot, if you can. So, um, and I think DMD is going to get there eventually. Uh, You know, there are FDA approved therapies, there are ways to screen for it. It's going to go to the RSP, and eventually, it's going to get approved. But we just decided, you know, we can do this, and we can do this now, and maybe we can help generate some preliminary, you know, sort of pilot data that would help drive a RUSP approval. So, um, and as having worked at the newborn screening program here in my state, and and being sort of the person in charge at my hospital that delivers a lot of babies, I'm pretty familiar with the processes of newborn screening, and I decided that it would be feasible to set up a hospital-based supplemental program that's actually not new either. uh, used to be done, Pennsylvania used to offer supplemental testing, I know, um, in the 90s before screening panels were expanded by the state. Um, So we decided to just, with some funding from uh, um, the Cure uh, Duchenne Foundation, to offer to our parents in our hospital, um, the parents of newborns born in our hospital, uh, the opportunity to do an added newborn screening test and we figured out a system for collecting uh, samples, an extra sample at the same time the mandated newborn screen was being collected and we figured out a way to get it to a lab to measure the CK and we figured out the cutoffs and we figured out how to do um, a a genomic um, test on the samples that had high CKs and we set up a follow-up program in the event that we actually found any babies. And that program's been running for um, six or seven months now. We've screened about almost 3,500 newborns. Uh, we haven't detected yet a baby with Duchenne, but um, we parents seem very interested in doing it. And and um, we we, I think, successfully shown this can be done. On a supplementary basis, it can be offered to parents and they're interested in doing it if you offer it to them. So hopefully this is just all information that will ultimately go into approval of this disorder to be screened um, as as part of uh, the RUSP uh, panel. But that could take a number of years yet before we get there. In the meantime, our babies at our hospital are, are getting screened every day, or they have the opportunity to do that if they choose to do.
2: So, Dr. Farad, in thinking about Duchenne and the model that you've built, do you think that this is a model that can apply to other conditions? Or as you look across the next candidates for newborn screening, do you think we sort of have to tweak it a little bit for each new condition?
0: I think each condition will have to be, uh, you know, sort of uniquely fine-tuned. Certainly some conditions that there are now uh, actionable conditions that we don't screen for because we don't have a first analyte like IRT or CK to look for. There are disorders that at the moment can only be screened for looking at at DNA. So doing a primary first tier sequencing screen. Um, So I think you have to look at each disorder and whether an analyte is available or not. Um, in some cases, that one analyte alone might be enough to just do it. In other cases, maybe you need two analytes. Or I think more and more, we're we're going more to have more tools available to us as sequencing becomes kind of the next major platform to get added to newborn screening. It's certainly being done second tier uh, to confirm a first tier abnormality um a lot and i'm seeing the future as as uh hopefully uh allowing first tier screening for for very specific disorders but i think it will be a disease by disease decision about what's what's the most um, effective and efficient um, algorithm to to screen for and in the case of Duchenne, uh, if we were doing primary sequencing on everyone uh, for another disorder, uh, you know, you could stick Duchenne in and just do primary sequencing for Duchenne. But, you know, we haven't quite gotten there yet. Um, I think if, if one or two disorders are, are added that uh, will be screened for with sequencing, if we can figure out how to do that, then... A whole lot more could probably be added to the to the panel of, of of actionable disorders that we do not currently screen for because we don't have the analog to do that.
2: Thank you. Um, so thinking about the future, you and your colleagues presented at the MBS and Research Summit earlier last year, at the end of last year, on the early detection of pediatric cancer predisposition. Can you take a minute and describe your goals with this effort and how it could advance pediatric cancer research?
0: Certainly. And, and this is an area that I'm uh, I'm focusing a lot of attention on now because I, I, I really believe in it as an important um, project. And uh, I know a lot of people thought I was kind of nuts in trying to uh, propose screening for cancer in 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 children as something appropriate for newborn screening uh but i have a very dear colleague um at the dana farber cancer institute here in boston uh, lisa diller who's a pediatric oncologist and for a long time we've just tossed around the idea uh because she's done a lot of work on retinoblastoma um of whether there would be a good way to to screen for retinoblastoma now if if you're not familiar with that particular cancer. M- most pediatricians know about it because they do this part of the physical exam on every newborn called the red reflex, where they shine a light into the baby's eye and they look um, for either red or white signal back from the reflected light. And you should see red, that would mean the retina's there and it's happy. And if you see white, it makes you worry there might be a, a tumor um, in the eye because. Babies are often born um, with a tumor already growing. Um, this is this, uh, this particular cancer is associated with uh, when it's bilateral in both eyes. Is associated with uh, variants in the RB1 gene, and um, uh, this is a known cancer predisposition gene, which doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have cancer. But the likelihood is is quite high, and, and there are, uh, are a handful of genes we know about that are associated. Uh, variants in the genes are associated with very early onset um, cancer. I think retinoblastoma is just the best one that most people um, know about. There are other ones like Wilms tumor and and uh, Wnt one, and and you know several more. But um, we we're focusing on this retinoblastoma idea. Because that red reflex exam that the pediatricians do, it has very, very, very poor sensitivity. So it misses a lot of tumors. And the great thing about retinoblastoma, even though it's terrible to have an, an eye tumor, uh, that can both make a child blind and can metastasize and, uh, and, and cause you know lethal cancers, is that if you catch it early, you can remove it surgically, and then the child um, does not need radiation or um, chemotherapy, both of which are associated with later complications in in life. So newborn screening would be perfect for this disorder. And being able to look at RB1 in every baby and make sure there wasn't a pathogenic variant would be a way to do newborn screening. So that's a primary DNA sequencing screen. And um, if you were screening for one cancer predisposition gene, um, well, you might as well screen for the other 10 that's that's on, uh, on the, the list of culprits um, that cause early cancers. And Dr. Diller actually did a, a model. She published a paper recently of a um, decision analysis model where she said, if we screened, could do sequencing newborn screening for these um, 11 genes, uh, what would happen to the Um, to to the death rate Um, and uh, it it turns out it would be drastically um, reduced if we could screen detect the babies who carried these variants um, very early on and put them in surveillance programs where they were just monitored very closely in the case of retinoblastoma they'd get regular eye exams to make sure um, that a tumor was caught very early, and then you could intervene very early. And then once they get past the first few years, they're, they're kind of uh, out of the woods for that. So, and, and we chose cancers and cancer predisposition genes that had known surveillance protocols that had already been vetted by pediatric oncology publications. So um, this is where we, we sort of started with retinoblastoma. We thought now that sequencing is not, not so hard to do, we should, you know figure out a way to, to try to pilot this, and then we add it on the other genes because it's really the same cost to do one gene or 10 genes at the same time if you're um, sequencing in this way. And um, you know, we've been working very hard to, to get uh, funding to, to do this pilot. Um, we've already developed a product. That we would uh, use the the primer set that we would use to do the sequencing. We've already done some some preliminary work, but we're still working on the and get, getting funded well enough to uh, to roll it out in a pilot
1: cohort. Dr. Peron, like early on in our interview, you mentioned about sequencing. So this brings me to our next question: Can you tell us about what is BabySeek? Uh,
0: well, BabySeek um, was uh, part of an an NIH-funded uh, group of projects uh, that came out of a collaboration between um, the National Insti- Institute of uh, Childhood Diseases and the National um, Institute of uh, Genomic Research, uh, where mm, probably about 10 or 12 years now, they uh, the institutes got together and sat down and looked at sequencing and said, how might this be valuable to newborn screening and let’s offer um, a grant proposal that would let people investigate this. So uh, the group of investigators four different sites around the country uh, were funded in this and uh, at this and the group of investigators here in Boston um, designed the projects where we proposed to offer um, to parents of newborns to have their baby have a whole exome, sequencing performed uh, at the time of birth, and then that we would provide the information back to them. Uh, very specifically, we focused on reporting back um, genes that were associated with disorders that happened in early childhood or in, in childhood. And um, eventually, we, we changed, we did add on um, actionable adult disorders that, um, you know, ACMG has said lists of, of those um, that if, if we found information that was actionable, we would um, offer that to parents as well. And so BabySeek was the name given to our project where we <clears throat> offered parents this sequencing in the newborn period, and then babies were randomized to either getting sequenced or getting standard care, which would be um, just a newborn regular newborn screen um and they were also met with a genetic counselor who took a thorough family history and made a family tree um that was done in both groups and then we followed these babies out over a year and mainly the follow-up was to look and see how parents were impacted by having having been given this information so um They understood it. Did it make them anxious? Did it affect their relationship with their child? Um, How did they use the information? And so we we sent surveys to parents um, three or four times over the first year. And we compared the control group and the sequence group. Because just having a baby by itself, that's definitely changes parents' lives. And uh, we needed a sort of background uh, to to compare the uh, answers to. In addition, we were able to observe of the babies we did sequence what fraction of those babies were found to have pathogenic variants in the genes that we looked at, and we interestingly found that between nine and ten percent of all babies, and uh, m- regardless of uh, you know, we we, we sequenced uh, babies in the NICU and babies in the well baby nursery. We didn't select out babies who uh, for which people were. Uh, suspicious of a genetic disorder. We took, you know, all, all comers and, um, we, we, we found that, you know, almost one out of 10 babies had a variant in a gene that should eventually cause, you know, disease in that child, which is much higher actually than the rate of what's found in conventional newborn screening. So I think that was another important finding from, um, from BabySeq, uh, so BabySeq was just the name, the cute name, uh, given to the the, the project. Uh, we sequenced babies and um, gave the information back to the to the families.
2: Dr. Prad, you've been obviously involved in training the next generation of neonatologists and really newborn screeners. What do you tell these folks um, about newborn screening research?
0: Well, you know honestly, a lot of the trainees that i I work with um, I'm always surprised i'm actually not that surprised because it it's my own learning curve has been very circuitous um, I'm surprised that you know the formal teaching in the medical education is pretty minimal uh, about newborn screening uh certainly medical students learn and residents learn about heritable disorders and congenital anomalies, but it's unusual that they've had a teaching session where someone really sits them down and gives them the history of newborn screening and shows how a public health intervention um, has been so effective and why it's so important to take it seriously and be meticulous about um, making sure it's done and and the results are known, as opposed to being sort of a pain in the neck, which is, I think, how um many (laughs) clinicians um look at it uh and I think if you're in a general pediatric practice and you might not see very many babies who have a true positive and you might see a whole bunch of babies who have false positives and that's really annoying because everyone gets all upset about that and you have to do more tests and so forth but um I usually try to impress on on the trainees that um Newborn screening is really important. That you know, we'll identify 10 or 15 thousand babies in the country every year who who have terrible diseases that where an early intervention is really going to make a big difference. And there's a lot more for us to learn about how to do this better and how to potentially expand it to more problems. That if we could detect early and we knew what the there an early therapy um, should be, that that we got those children into earlier treatment that would improve you know their long-term outcome and that's i think where most pediatricians mindset lives is uh you know we like to take care of children because they have their whole futures ahead of them and we have an opportunity to try to optimize that by um you know taking good care of them and so uh i have encouraged a few trainees to go into um um, genetics and newborn screening related research. So um, a couple have have uh, have have uh, bitten onto this, but uh, probably ma- the majority walk away with still this a pain in the neck. And <laughs> why do we have to do this? Uh, but I'll keep I'll keep trying.
1: Dr. Prabh, we're happy that you're going to continue to advocate for newborn screening research and encourage new members to uh, be part of this field. You've been a member of the Newborn Screening Translational Research Network, which is MBS-TRN. What role does MBS-TRN play? What role could MBS-TRN play in, the, in your efforts to help ensure that all babies have the healthiest future possible and the screening for diseases for which early intervention may improve outcome?
0: I think it's very important to have a central um organization that brings uh people together who are interested in this area because you know we're we're all looking at rare disorders that are like finding a needle in the haystack and um and if you're looking for a rare disorder and you're totally on your own I think your chances are much lower of having success in um you know in moving a field forward uh you're less likely to succeed if you stay on your own and you don't have other colleagues with similar interests, even if they're different disorders to bounce things off of and, and discuss. Um, so I think NBSTRN certainly brings together um, this unusual group of people who happen to be interested in new brand screening. And then um, the benefits of the organization existing is that they can actually offer things to, to, um, to this group, um, I, I think the idea of being a repository for all the phenotype and genotype information on babies detected through newborn screening is, is a very, potentially very valuable um, resource and might um, allow investigators to, um, to use those data without having to accumulate them on their own to discover new things about the disease or or treating a disease Um, you know if you're only detecting a baby one in a hundred thousand babies that has a certain disorder then you're going to accumulate them much more quickly if everyone puts their heads together and NBS TRN is one um, one way of doing that there are some other um, federally funded organizations that do help collect newborn screening um, data from newborn screening programs but um I look at MBSTRN very very much from the um from rose-colored uh glasses, uh thinking about sequencing and about the special needs of um being a repository for uh for human DNA sequences. And that that just needs special tools and special storage and people who understand how manipulate that data. Um it, it's a, a little more Complex perhaps than um, some of the other analytes that um, that are measured and data are collected on, where you can you know just sort of collect a whole bunch of um, uh, numbers on a on a thyroid hormone level or or something like that across many newborn screening programs. I think the the DNA information is more challenging to to collect and then to actually focus on collecting information on the on the phenotypes of those babies because you know no two babies with even with the same disease and the same variant have the same symptoms so it's very helpful to to collect the whole spectrum of um of what can be caused by some some of these um disorders and and then again if you collect collect the numbers and put the clinical stories together with the, um, the, the genetic information, it may be able to tell us more about what a particular uh, variant is, is going to cause or what the likelihood is of it being mild or severe or, you know, all kinds of different factors. So I think having having a, a central, um, you know, data uh, repository for this kind of information is really should amplify our, our ability to you know move forward and and figure out how to do screening um, better uh, than we're doing it now, and how to use the information that we get more effectively.
1: Doctor Prahl, what keeps you going during during tough times, especially like during a pandemic? Like any stories, as inspiration for our listeners.
0: Well, uh, you know, one story comes to mind that that I think. Um, it has certainly had an impact on on me and uh, kept me going. And um, that was a story that started with uh, being invited to brunch at my best friend's, uh, I think he, he was maybe 55, the 55 birthday party. And he lived in a nearby town and went over on a Sunday morning for this party. And I was just chatting with his neighbors uh, meeting his neighbors. And um, this uh, couple in their 60s um, explained to me that they had recently become grandparents. Um, their daughter lived in Florida, um, but the baby died on um, the second day of life. And it was a just a tragic story um, of a newborn that had a you know, totally unremarkable pregnancy and delivery and, um, just uh, on the second day of life just died. And, um, I, you know, I, I was horrified by this story and, you know, this poor, uh, these poor grandparents. And, and then they told me, and, or, um, that, that happened, um, actually, you know, or Earlier in the year, and she's pregnant again. And I, I asked, you know, what had been done to try to, you know, why did the baby die? What what, what happened? Um, did they do a newborn screening test? <laughs> and um, apparently, the baby had died before uh, the newborn screen had been sent. And then, um, even though an autopsy had been done and all that, they nobody had a specific diagnosis. And here the mother was pregnant again and at 12 weeks. Um, And I was very concerned that, uh, you know, that maybe not everything had been done to try to get an answer that would have been important for this, for the young couple in terms of figuring out to do, you know, reproductively. So, you know, if the, if this was known to be, um, a certain disorder or if the inheritance was understood um, and testing could be done that, that um, I explained to the grandparents that you, there could be pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and you could um, sort of engineer things so that you would if you knew what the disorder was you could make sure that it wasn't going to happen again on the next pregnancy because you know this sounded just terrible so but there wasn't a diagnosis and there wasn't anything to do about it so I thought about it and I thought about it and I called um, my colleague that I told you about before, Andy Batacharji, the, the, who does the you know, genomic testing with me. And um, I thought, what if I could get a hold of um, a sample, I, th- I think a newborn screening sample had been sent after the baby passed away, um, was sent to the newborn screening program. Um, but they they wouldn't interpret the results because they said they weren't you know, valid at that point in time. But, but you know, DNA is DNA. It's the same DNA before you die, after you die. It's the same. So I wondered whether I could get that dried blood spot and bring it back to our lab and see if we could do some sequencing. And we had developed a panel to screen um, genetically for... Um, a lot of the rare uh, metabolic disorders, so I contacted the Florida uh, Newborn Screening program. I told them this terrible story. They sent me to dry blood spot uh, went to our lab it got sequenced, and a variant was found in in the c p t two gene which you know causes a very often lethal um, uh, uh, a metabolic disorder uh the bottom line here was that we actually had useful information for the parents to, um, let them help, help plan their reproductive future. Um, and they, she was already pregnant and they weren't going to do, um, anything about, um, their current pregnancy. Um, but they decided to come to Boston (laughs) and deliver their baby where we could, um, monitor the baby right from the get-go, um, make sure the baby was on uh, IV glucose right away and get the diagnostic test done right away. And it turned out that the, the second baby wasn't affected. Um, and then they went on to have a third baby. And that, that time, using the information they had, they were they were able to do testing to, to confirm that, um, that their pregnancy wasn't um, affected so that she could relax through her pregnancy and know that um, she wasn't going to have an affected baby. So um, I think about that family a lot because of the power of the information that can be um, provided by this kind of um, screening um, and and how valuable it can be to, to, to families. And this family was obviously, you know, devastated that they lost their first child, but they were very grateful um, that, that they were lucky that their second child wasn't affected and that they had information that would, um, help them be sure their third child was not affected. So that was a sort of newborn screening detective, um, mission. And, uh, and it had a happy ending.
2: You know, Dr. Farad, you spoke about the amazing role that clinicians and researchers play in advancing newborn screening, Um, what advice do you have for families and patients and advocates?
0: I I wish, um, you know, I, I think parents have, different parents have different feelings about newborn screening. They understand it differently. They look at it differently. I wish there was a way to have them feel that um, you know this. This was a good thing that they didn't have to worry about, um, because uh, you know there have obviously been a lot of controversies in certain states about retention of samples, um, and you know the story I just told you about. If Florida had destroyed um, the sample uh, within a few months of of the baby's uh, demise. Then it wouldn't have been available to go back and do that testing. Um, I wish there was a way to have parents understand that you know newborn screening programs are good guys, and um, newborn screening is meant to protect um, babies, and um, you know it's not meant to be Big Brother is watching you. Um, but that um, it is very helpful to newborn screening programs to have these dry blood spots, um, available to be able to, and the information from them available, um, aggregated to, to be able to improve screening, um, and, and sometimes for the individual baby to have a sample to go back to, uh, after the fact, but that, um, uh, you know, the newborn screeners, I think are, are, are in this, uh, for, for good purposes to, If if the dried blood spots are are retained, Um, it's such a complicated process, and there's so many disorders, most of which you know the names cannot be pronounced. That I think it's very hard, you know, for parents sometimes to understand um, about this. So I, I you know I wish there was a way to communicate in 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 more clear and you know basic terms to parents you know what what this is really about and and how how important it is and how valuable it is for those 10 or fifteen thousand babies that that get detected every year um that you know that get early therapies and and have have better outcomes and the only way that we find those is is because we've been able to you know do some research and you know figure out ways to do things better
2: thank you that's really inspiring and sort of helps dr chan and i with our day-to-day um you know focus on what we need to do to help advance newborn screening research so when dr chan and i um conceived of this uh podcast we always wanted to end with a signature question so our signature question for everybody who does these podcasts is what does newborn screening research mean to you
0: well to me it means uh how can we make this better? And, um, you know, it's a great system that we we have. Um, you look back over 50 years and it's really remarkable uh, how it started and what it's turned into today. But I think we can always do better. And that may mean adding new disorders and that may mean um, doing better at screening the disorders we're already Screen for maybe more efficiently maybe with fewer false positives uh you know whatever and so i I think we need to do research in order to figure those things out we can't just um pick a way to do things and say this is the right way we have to try them out and observe and collect information and and then do quality improvement and and compare different algorithms because they're there's more than one way to screen for you know almost every disorder. You can pick, could pick different analytes, different cutoffs, different um, in, in different ways of, of doing things. So uh, we need research to sort these things out, and it, it's maybe not um, always the easiest to do because again, you're, you're looking for very very rare disorders. Um, so you have to screen lots and lots and lots of babies to find the, the true positives. But um it it's it's challenging. And um maybe that's one of the things about it that, that appeals to me is that you've just you know gotta try to be clever and figure out how you can figure out you know the most that you can on um on the smallest budget to do a research project. Um uh, I think it, it's really uh, a little frustrating in going to funding agencies, which you know usually have you know very fixed budgets. And when you come in and think that you need to screen say fifty thousand babies to really try to answer a question, and the budget is never going to give you enough money to do that, then you have to come up with other creative ways to um, you know to try to find your answers on a smaller number of. Of babies, um, so re- newborn new screening research to me means, you know, how, just how can we how can we make expand it and make it better, um, uh, you know, given the resources that we have.
2: Thank you for listening to this episode of Newborn Screening Spotlight. If you like our podcast, please subscribe and share an episode with your colleagues, friends, and family. Get involved, stay informed, help us advance discoveries. Together, let's increase the impact of newborn
1: screening research by listening to your stories.